0: This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on
1: WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com.
0: Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be back with you. Um, as many of you know, I've been on the road last couple of weeks uh, for a variety of events. Uh, just to bring you up to speed, I was in Las Vegas for the Professional Bull Riders World Finals, and it was quite an exciting event. Uh, it's amazing how many people there are at these events, and it was consecutively five days of bull riding. And it's great to work with extremely, extremely nice athletes who perform so well. Uh, It was uh, phenomenal. And I have to tell you, I pay a lot of attention to the bulls. I want to let you know that because I think there's a misconception that bull riding is cruel to the animal, uh, that they're in some way triggering the animal to, to buck and, and ride. Um, these bulls are trained from a young age that when someone is on them or when there is a cinch rope, that rope is the trigger for them to buck. When they take the rope off, they stop. They are, they are very much the athletes involved in this, and they are worth a lot of money to the, to the livestock owner. And that's how they make their money. So believe me, those uh, bulls are treated like superstars. Uh, After bull riding, I then went to Notre Dame. It was my first time in South Bend, Indiana. I got to be at Notre Dame looking at their boxing program. Something I didn't know is that they have an undergraduate boxing program. It's basically an intramural sport, and they have 550 young people involved in this program. That's right, 550. This year, 286 women signed up for boxing. Only about half of them actually get in the ring and spar, but it's a tremendous program from the standpoint of over the course of 12 weeks, they really get the athletes in shape. They train them. So many people do it just for the physical activity. And really gets them into shape. So it's a tremendous program that was started in 1920 by Newt Rockney. They put on a tremendous event that I was there for, the Baraka bouts for women and the Bengal bouts for men. And they raise about $300,000 a year for money that goes to the Holy Cross Fathers and their missions in Bangladesh and in East Africa. Uh, This week, I also uh, had the opportunity to give, give grand rounds for the University of Connecticut. It was held over at Hartford Hospital. And my topic was sports concussion, when is it time to quit? This is a common question that I get from patients who have experienced multiple concussions, is when is it time that I should walk away from the sport? And we have some good guidelines and Signs that tell us what we should be doing. For example, if there's any abnormality on imaging studies, MRI or CT, or on the neurologic examination, it's probably time to move away from the sport. The other thing we look for is a lower threshold for brain injury. So someone who may require a certain amount of force applied to the brain to get a concussion with their first concussion, now with their third or fourth. They just get a little hit to the brain and have more severe symptoms. Again, that lower threshold, probably a sign that it's time to move away. The one thing we really look for is an inability to perform at your previous level, meaning either academically, athletically, socially, or in the workplace. If you can't measure up and you notice this decline, it's time to walk away from the sport. So there are some good guidelines, but again, they require careful evaluation. One of the things we chatted about in a previous show was the New England 61-Day Challenge. This is the challenge put together by Trinity Health and St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center that is going from November 1st to December 31st. Uh, Dr. Hussein was our guest on the show who's heading up this effort. I signed up for it after the show. I went to the website newengland61daychallenge.org and signed up for it. And it is tremendous. So the idea of the program is to get people to make a change in their lives for better health. Quit smoking cigarettes. Watching your diet. And specifically, so in my case, one of the things that triggered this was, so since doing it, I've cut back on the amount of sugar I take. So typically I would put some sugar in my coffee and I just stopped doing it. And I've adapted to the taste without sugar. And when I travel, it's often a situation where, you know, you're going out to a lot of dinners um, with meetings and things such as that. So you, you invariably start putting on weight. By just paying attention to sugar in coffee or a sugary beverage so on an airplane i often like a caffeinated beverage so i would get uh, a coke or a diet coke instead i got water and it has made a difference uh for me and and actually on this trip i actually lost a pound in weight Uh, but that wasn't the original goal so my point is this is a tremendous effort for our community that's put out there by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. I urge you all to sign up. It's not too late. Uh, they send you great emails during the week. They have meetings and various sessions to help you get through this time and things that encourage exercise and other things that will get us into better health. November 17, 1645, this day in medicine. Dr. Nicholas Lemeray was born. Dr. Lemeray was a physician and a chemist, and he discovered that there's iron in our blood. Now, this is particularly important in my field of study because when we look at MRIs of the brain, it's the iron after a hemorrhage that lasts. Let me explain a little bit more. So if someone has had repeated head injuries, blood eventually resolves. Little tiny micro amounts of blood blood resolves, but it leaves its signature, and that signature is iron. So on a thing called susceptibility-weighted images, a certain type of scan that we do fairly routinely now on MRI, you can see the iron that's left behind, and it tells you that that person has had small hemorrhages. So that discovery that he made back in the 1600s is still a very important hallmark and helps us deliver care. This week, we got new guidelines from the federal government regarding exercise. This is the first time this has been looked at in the last 10 years. So we all know that the idea is to move more and sit less. But the next part of that that came out in these guidelines is start younger. So previously, we would say, let's start at age six. That was what the previous age was. Now we're finding we need to start being active between the ages of three and five. And that activity takes the form of active play. So children between the ages of three and five should be involved in approximately three hours of active play a day. That just means moving, not sitting around not sitting in front of a computer, standing and moving. From ages 6 to 17, we really want to see them moving more than one hour, okay? So at least one hour of moderate to vigorous exercise every day. And typically, we want that to be aerobic exercise. Hanging out in the weight room and pushing weight around is not necessarily the way to go in this situation. For adults, we'd like to see two and a half to five hours a week of moderate exercise with one and a quarter to two and a half hours of vigorous exercise. The difference being moderate exercise is walking at a leisurely pace. Vigorous exercise, jogging, getting on a treadmill, using an elliptical, that's vigorous exercise. And again, one and a quarter to two and a half hours per week. In that, as adults, we want to mix in about two days of resistance exercise weights something that helps you build muscle or avoid more atrophy of muscle we've got a big week coming up this is going to be thanksgiving and it only means one thing food and with that everybody should enjoy a good meal But. This is a time when we have to avoid excess. So a couple of things. Try to eat more veggies with the meal. Try to use smaller portions. Taste everything, everything you like. Don't deprive yourself, but just don't go overboard. Try to avoid seconds and thirds. The other thing that's very helpful is trying to exercise as a family, possibly between Thanksgiving dinner and dessert, right? There's always that gap where you want to just lay down, loosen your belt, and go to sleep. Possibly, as a family, going out for a walk is going to be helpful for your metabolism, your digestion, and avoiding feeling really ill the next day. So with that, we want you to keep that in mind. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest here in the studio. Dr. David Shapiro is my guest Um, He's going to be here. He's from St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, where he is vice chairman of the Department of Surgery. We're talking about trauma. I want to give you the phone numbers, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. That's 1-800-966-WTIC. If you don't want to call in and be on the air, you can shoot me an email at info at md. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. (laughs) What a great choice. Uh, Since we were talking about bull riding and uh, rodeo. Uh, Actually, I'll be heading back out to Las Vegas in December for the National Finals Rodeo. Now, this is an interesting event. You know, it's slow time. This was explained to me by a taxi driver in Las Vegas. So it's a slow time between Thanksgiving and Christmas in Las Vegas. So for many, many years, as long as anybody can remember, the national finals rodeo would bring rodeo to Las Vegas. Uh, Now it's at Thomas and Mac. It's at a variety of centers. Uh, South Point has it, um, some of the casinos. So there's events going on for 10 days solid of rodeo. You can't get a ticket for the event. You have to win a lottery at some point to get those tickets because they're sold out every night. I guess I it's an interesting story since we're on the topic. So at a lot of the events, when you work at the event, they give you a gift of some type. And for the medical staff this year, it was a leather jacket. So I got a a leather jacket with the PBR logo on it and a very nice jacket It had a little pocket for your cell phone. So I put my cell phone in the pocket and I couldn't. It was a big pocket, but there was a little holder. So I'm trying to get it in the holder and I couldn't quite get it in, but I ignored it. Later on, asked the other guys I was with, I said, you know, there's that little holder I can't get my phone in. And they said, well, doctor, that's for your concealed weapon. So I am the ultimate dude because here I am trying to fit a cell phone in what was a holster, okay? So anyhow, um, they all got a good laugh because the city slicker was trying to get his phone into a holster. With that, um, always great stories. My guest today is Dr. David Shapiro. Um, He is the vice chairman of the Department of Surgery at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. David, welcome back to the show.
2: Thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate you being here.
0: Um, Let's chat a little bit. Um, I'd I like to bring everybody up to speed on the importance of your training. How did you get to be a trauma surgeon? How did it all start? Medical school. Where'd you go to medical school? Kind of give us the whole story here.
2: So I went to med school at UConn. So I'm a, I'm a homegrown guy. Boston Boston College for undergraduate, UConn for med school. Then I stayed at UConn, which is the affiliated group in all of the Hartford area for my surgical residency, which is five years. Four years of med school, five years of residency. And then most people choose to do a surgical fellowship of some kind. I did critical care and trauma out at the Oregon Health Science University in Portland.
0: So then did you do trauma as part of the residency, or is it a- additional time?
2: Trauma is included in most residencies and surgery, but we do a specialty fellowship in critical care and trauma when we do our fellowship year.
0: When we talk of trauma, what are we talking about? Let's, let's really get down to the specifics of it.
2: Trauma has many definitions. For my world in surgery, trauma is accidents, injuries, falls, car crashes, stabbings, shootings, any injury that someone's body has been impacted, hurt, or touched by somebody else and that's caused trouble.
0: Is there a growing attraction to trauma for medical students? I hear this more and more. Are more people going into general surgery? Where are medical students going these days other than dermatology and ophthalmology? Uh, are they, is there a certain attraction? Cause I've been hearing it more from the medical students I work with uh, who want to do surgery. I hear the word trauma. Is, is that a trend?
2: Well, I think surgery is becoming more and more popular now that the work hours guidelines during training have been in effect for almost 10 years now. So it makes surgery much more approachable for people who thought they couldn't have families or thought that it would affect their lifestyle too much. Trauma is an attractive thing for many people because it's exciting. It's interesting. It can have lulls of quiet. It can have periods of excitement, and really we get to treat every part of the body. I treat everything from head injuries, shootings, crashes, falls, you name it, we get to do it. And then there's the outreach part. So I wouldn't say it's the most popular specialty out there, but more and more students are looking towards it as an exciting field.
0: That's great, and it's certainly exciting because, you know, you are uh, treating a lot of different age and and genders. Um, We have a question. We have Mark on the line from Groton. Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, Yes, uh, my question, and I'll explain my problem right after I ask the question, is basically um, what would be the difference that an MRI compared to a CT or or CAT scan could see? Because my my problem has been I have had a surgery when I was a a child, and um, it was a a skin uh, surgery, but they had to remove gangrene, so they dug some of my left flank area out. And I have a problem, basically, with a blood vessel in the area. Um, When the bowels go through in that area, it squeezes off the blood vessels and gives me circulation problem in the left side of my body. And they've taken one CAT scan, and over time they've taken three MRIs, and I wasn't quite sure.
0: Great question. Great question. You know, in general, the issue between CT scan and MRI, a CT scan measures density. So blood... Uh, rather bone, is very dense as we know it. So it shows up very white on a scan. Now the MRI measures something called signal. So fat has the highest signal, so that shows up very brightly on an MRI. Now I'm going to defer to Dr. Shapiro regarding your question because we're talking about not the brain but looking at the flank. How how would that help and, and the difference between CT and MRI and looking at someone who has had... What sounds like an excision after gangrene.
2: So from my world, and this is, of course, I don't know this patient very well but, or at all, but when someone's looking at a problem that hurts, that's annoying, that's something that's bothered them in the past, and we look for the density differences in what the structures are like, CT scans are very useful. And it often tells us where we can identify our problem or where we even need to operate in some situations. MRI is a little more specific in certain situations, and then it can look at muscle structure. It can look at the signals that are being activated in nerves, and it can tell us if something is inflamed. But really it's about not just the study but the evaluation of the patient. So,
0: Great. Do we answer your question there, Mark?
1: Uh, Yes. All right. The very difference between them. Okay, thank you very much. Great
0: Great chatting with you. You too. You know, because it's interesting because in trauma, we kind of live by the CT scan. I mean, the MRI is nice, but it doesn't really help you in the immediacy of a traumatic event.
2: That's true. CT scans are much more popular for trauma because they're fast these days. We can really focus on certain parts of the body. and We, we can really guide our clinical practice and our um, goal to understand what's going on with the patient by using a CT scan or other x-rays. But really, the first thing we do is our physical exam. Airway breathing circulation. That's the best way to assess.
0: It it just gets back down to basics. We're gonna we're chatting today with Dr. David Shapiro, who is the Uh, vice chairman of surgery in the department of surgery at St. Francis hospital medical center. We're going to take a short break. We're coming up on the bottom of the hour and we're going to be talking a little bit more in the next half hour about the different levels of trauma center. St. Francis hospital medical center is now a level one trauma center. We're going to talk about what that means. We're going to talk about what trauma means to everyone listening because things are changing in that field. And we are all now as good members and citizens of our community, uh, there's some obligation to be familiar with trauma and how to help our fellow citizens out. So we're going to talk about public education. The phone numbers here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. We're going to take a break and you're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, we're chatting with my guest today, Dr. David Shapiro. We're talking about trauma. Uh, David, let's, let's get to it. So St. Francis Hospital Medical Center was just certified as a level one trauma center. That's the highest level? Correct. What does that mean?
2: So the American College of Surgeons is our governing body, and they delineate a bunch of requirements for trauma centers to meet in order to become level one, level two, level three, and then the rural or access centers, level four, et cetera. St. Francis has been a level two center, a very strong, high-performing level two center for the last 10 years, and we decided with our parent organization, Trinity Health, that we wanted to be at the top of the road, in the top of the group. So we applied. We had a, a something called a collaborative visit or a consultative visit with the College of Surgeons comes in and looks at us and says, here's where you need to improve. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you're doing well. And we focused on all those things. And as of October 31st this year, we were now not only designated by the state of Connecticut as a trauma center, as a level one trauma center, but verified by the American College of Surgeons as a level one trauma center, which is the highest status you can get.
0: Walk me through the different, how many levels are there and, and what do they mean? Well, the important
2: levels are level one through – really, it's one through four. There's a couple designations in the four and five level where we talk about rural centers that we don't really don't have in, in New England even sure. because we're, there are some places up north that are a little further away. But really, level one, um, it's a program where there's about 250 programs um, across the – 200 programs across the country that are level one. And there's 108 requirements that they list as a big checklist of things. The American College will come in. They bring in surgeons to actually assess your program – and they look at everything from how you document to what your actual care at the bedside is to your outreach, your research, what your surgeons are trained in, how your emergency medicine docs are educated, every gamut of your possible care for the patient. Once they do that, if we have any deficits or any challenges, we fix them. And then after the consultative visit is over, they come back for a formal visit, usually about a year later. Our visit was in the end of August. And that visit gave us the opportunity to shine and show what we've done open our books and they look at um, the experience of our patients at our hospital, they look at our providers' and care and how we operate, and all the things that we do from the second somebody walks in the door or comes in the door via ambulance to the time they're discharged and going to rehab. Every moment in between is assessed and evaluated and we have to answer to their needs, and to their demands.
0: When did we start assigning levels to trauma centers?
2: So it's been a few dozen years and the programs have evolved from the original concept of triage, which was Actually created by an orthopedic surgeon who, believe it or not, crashed his own plane um, in the middle of nowhere. I don't know if you know this story, but this gentleman cl- crashes. No, plane. but
0: it's not unique for orthopedic surgeons no. to f- fly and crash. That's true. So. Well,
2: maybe not crash. Hopefully, but okay. He float flew, flew his own plane. He had his family on board, and his children and his wife were severely injured, and I believe his wife died, and there was a child that was killed, and. His son actually spoke at one of our committee on trauma meetings not too long ago. He wrote a book on the story, but he decided that since he had to triage his own family, this should be applied to how we take care of patients in a community. So the concept of triage is born of the battlefield, and we've learned over many wars and many incursions that people that are most injured should go to the highest level of care. People that are um, are dead and gone need no care, obviously, but anyone with a level of injury from a minor scrape to the most severe injury inside their body needs to be seen by the place that can take care of them the fastest and the best. So triage was created to do that. We can do that in in the setting of a battlefield where we triage the five soldiers before us or 50 soldiers before us, but in a community, triage is about how first responders come to a scene, they decide what they need, or they bring a patient in themselves. We call ambulances that bring EMTs and paramedics. Those providers treat patients at the roadside or at the site of the incident and then bring them in. They call Lifestar or other helicopter systems to bring patients to hospitals. And really it's about the speed of care in that first hour or so of their care. If we can get them to the hospital fast and treat them early with the appropriate interventions, we can save lives.
0: Uh, is that a lot of these lessons we've learned from the battlefield?
2: Many of them are. It's it's. Sometimes difficult to translate what we learn in the battlefield to what we do in the United States or in our own hospitals because we don't have the, the dare I say, youth of that, the soul of the community. Soldiers are healthy. They do really well when they're in the battlefield, and they can resist a lot. Um, as an example, blood transfusions. We've used blood transfusions for a long time, and we've used them well. But the modern technique in using blood transfusions was born of the forward theater in the uh, both Afghani and Iraqi conflicts in that we've learned if people get a transfusion of blood, if they get the blood component called plasma, which contains all those clotting factors, and we give them platelets back in a ratio of one-to-one one, or at least stick to that ratio as much as we can, we require fewer transfusions overall. Patients get better faster, and they don't wind up with as much blood. Um, Leading problems, like something called coagulopathy, sure. where their blood clotting system doesn't work. If we can do that, we treat them better. Now all hospitals, for the most part, use that one-to-one ratio to treat. So we've learned a ton from the battlefield and applied a bunch um, to our own systems to make sure that we can do things the right way in our hospitals.
0: Since we're talking about the battlefield, and uh, in this show we are accustomed to controversy, uh, recently the NRA uh, issued an edict telling physicians to stay in their lane. That this was not a medical decision with respect to guns and deciding who should have a gun and who shouldn't have a gun. Um, what do you think? I mean, this is what we do. Um,
2: I, I will. Here's my statement on that that matter. So the the NRA is a very powerful, very strong organization. The Second Amendment does its, um, it does its job. People have the right to bear arms. They have the right to own a firearm. The only thing that the surgical medical community say is, number one, we treat patients who have been victims or patients of gunshot wounds almost every day, if not every hour of every day in some places. So this is our lane. We do work in this field, and, and we do treat patients this way. But the most important part is we're not against guns. We're against bullet holes. I would love to see a day where I don't have to treat a patient with a bullet hole ever again because there aren't any out there. Guns by nature are a, uh, an option for patients, for people who want to own them. I support their right, I support their belief in that, and I support their strong safety um, features that they can use, so safe storage, making sure your firearm's only accessible to the users that are um, certified, knowledgeable, and safe about using them, making sure they're not available to children unless they've been e- extremely well-taught and well-trained, and making sure that those with either mental illness, suicidality, or other depressions don't have access to them when those crises are happening in their lives. We can do those things, and we can approach that by meeting in the middle and coming to a common ground on what's important.
0: I think that sums it up very well because I think that there has to be common ground, and I think the common ground clearly is in education, and we have to stop um, some of these uh, senseless injuries. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. David Shapiro. We're going to talk about what needs to be done as the public, as listeners here, what can we do to help save lives. Some simple ideas, again, simple ideas that anyone listening to this show can implement to help save lives from trauma. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds in our last segment with Dr. David Shapiro. Dr. Shapiro is the vice chairman at the Department of Surgery at St. Francis Hospital Medical Center. We're talking about trauma. David, what can we do as a public in terms of I've heard a lot of things about training people to use a tourniquet. Tourniquets save lives. I carry one in my car uh, since I took a course uh, for sports in using a tourniquet, especially on the side of a mountain when you're out uh, with the ski team. But is that what? where are we going here? What should people be doing? How can we get people motivated and get involved?
2: We'll start with the basics first. Really, stopping the bleeding is an important part, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But the best things you can do to avoid injury are stay strong, stay healthy, become part of that 61-day challenge because it matters that you lose weight and get a little healthier. Um, talking about kids and safety seats. If your kid is, if your kid's below a certain weight, you need to have a safety seat in your car. If you don't wear your seatbelt, you should wear a seat belt because those things matter. You should wear a helmet when you're biking. You should wear helmets and pads when you're skating. All those things matter. When you're skiing this winter, wear a helmet. Stop the brain injuries. When it comes to bleeding, the world changes a little bit. About. I don't know, a bunch of years ago, a couple dozen years ago, we started with, actually it's more than that now, we started with CPR, public training of CPR. It's a hard thing to prove that it helps, but we know it helps. And we see people who get CPR in the field, they wind up with um, blood flow to their brain, they can be saved by bringing them to the hospital or having a defibrillator brought to their bedside with medics and having them treated and brought to the hospital. What about someone who's bleeding? If you're in a car crash, if someone um, hurts you, if you fall down and, and lacerate your arm, what can be done? Stop the Bleed is a campaign that came from something called the Hartford Consensus, which was a partnership between the American College of Surgeons, the hospitals in Connecticut, as well as the federal government. And this was aimed towards stopping people from dying and from bleeding to death when they're injured by gunfire. But really, this is applicable to any kind of bleeding. So if somebody's bleeding, number one is put direct pressure on the wound. Number two is apply pressure points where those blood vessels are above that level of that wound. And number three, using a tourniquet the proper way. You can't teach that on radio, obviously, but people can go to stopthebleed.org or they can come to St. Francis and we teach the course for free. It is something that any layperson um, out there in the community can learn. It's easy to learn. A lot of the fire departments, police departments, uh, ambulance companies, and EMS employers can teach people. There's a few universities in the area that are teaching this course, and we've taught in the state of Connecticut thousands of people so far how to stop the bleed. The best resources are, I think you have the number for our Department of Surgery. They can call the Department of Surgery at St. Francis.
0: Absolutely. The number is 860-714-4548.
2: And if they call that number, they can um, ask for our injury prevention group, and we can set them up with a course they can come to. We can also come out to the community and teach courses to groups. We'd uh, be interested in teaching school nurses and school teachers, um, schools and school students even. There's a few medical students. There's actually one medical student named um, Jeremy uh, Fridling from Quinnipiac who's doing a ton of teaching on his own with his role at Quinnipiac and working with our group in the American College of Surgeons Connecticut chapter teaching this course. So if someone wants to find out more information, you can call that number or they can come to St. Francis' website or they can come to the American College of Surgeons Connecticut chapter website at ctacspa.org.
0: You know, I recently saw somebody on TV, it was a trauma surgeon, who sends his child to school every day with a trauma pack in his backpack. Um, The fact that we're doing this, is this a sign of the times? Is it it problematic?
2: Is it problematic for him to prepare his child the right way? I don't think so. No, is it problematic that
0: we're now teaching people to stop hemorrhaging from gunshot wounds?
2: I think we're seeing far more mass shooting events than we've seen in the past. We're certainly publicizing them more because they're on social media, they're on the news every day, they're on the radio, and we are seeing more and more and more uh, mass shootings. But we also see the same amount of shootings in our community that are not publicized. So these injuries happen not just from gunfire but from knives and glass and broken windows and cars. So anything we can do to help the community is smart.
0: What's the future when it comes to trauma surgery? Um, what are, what are we going to be looking at soon?
2: I think we'll be looking at uh, far more controlled systems, bringing providers who are capable of doing this kind of treatments that are urgent to patient needs out into the field transfusing blood products that are either artificial or um, born of another substance so we can use them in the field easily not rely on a community of blood donors who um, are very very rare now Um, and really learning that we can do things in the field to prevent bleeding and stop the bleeding when it happens i also think that um, programs that are Detection system for crime and events like the shot spotter system in Hartford that the police department uses, those are all things that can help decrease the time it takes to treat someone who's been injured, Um, not to mention automobiles. The amount of safety features that have been added to automobiles these days is remarkable. Those types of safety features, those those smart devices and technology, can be applied to firearms, can be applied to other devices, and we can make things safer.
0: Overall, uh, do you think – the expansion. Is the paramedic system and EMT system expanding? Is that is that helping us? I mean, I always hear about that and more people getting involved at that level. Has that been a big help in terms of trauma?
2: I will say this. At every hospital that's a level one trauma center, we have the expertise. We have these um, specially trained surgeons and, and nurses and providers in the ER. No one saves more lives than EMS and paramedics in the field. Absolutely no one. The police get involved early, but paramedics and EMTs who know what they're doing at the street side and at, in the houses save more lives than I ever will. They're an amazing group of people who come to us for resources. They provide us with information. They give the handoff, and they do things very quickly, very appropriately, and very assertively. That's their job, and they do a wonderful job at it. I think that the role is expanding, and I think people need to be attracted to that role.
0: It's great to hear. This has been great uh, chatting with today with uh, Dr. David Shapiro. Uh, Dr. Shapiro is the Department of Surgery, and he's the vice chairman in the Department of Surgery at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. You can contact Dr. Shapiro and his department for education um, about trauma at 860-714-4548. David, thank you again for your time and, and thank you especially for everything you do for our community.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure being here.
0: Uh, Next uh, week on Healthy Rounds, uh, I'm hoping we're going to have a show. We are always uh, in question these days due to football and basketball. Uh, But as always, I want to thank Dana Vitanza, who's been on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. We've got a lot of shows upcoming, and we want to talk a little bit about in the coming weeks, Um, things about helping you with your medical expenses. You know, Medicare is expanding. It's open enrollment now, so we want to get some ideas together for folks. One of the other big issues that we've wanted to tackle and talk about has been uh, the idea of hearing loss, and we're getting someone on uh, who to discuss from ear, nose, and throat surgery. Another big topic, you know, we did a show several weeks ago on low back pain, uh, I've had multiple requests and emails to get someone on to talk about neck pain, so we're working on getting a show together for that. Uh, Dr. Mary Gina Rathford will also be joining us in the next several weeks. She is an ophthalmologist, and we always love talking to her about new innovations in helping people see better, whether it be with cataract surgery or whatever else is uh, now appearing in the market. As I said earlier, Thanksgiving's coming up. Please have everybody have a healthy and safe Thanksgiving. A lot of people are going to be on the road, a lot of people traveling. So we want to make sure that everyone is safe. Be safe when you're eating. Drink minimally. Nothing really good happens with alcohol when alcohol is involved. And we know that. I'm sure my colleague here, Dr. Shapiro, knows that. So let's take everything in moderation this Thanksgiving. Next up on WTIC is going to be Garden Talk with Len. I want you to please remember to help save lives. And nowhere is, that, nowhere is that more important than in the show we talked about today. You can help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. I'm also going to add that you can help save lives by becoming a blood donor. As Dr. Shapiro mentioned, the pool of people donating blood has been shrinking. And we need to expand that if we're going to help people overall. So when it comes to being an organ donor, please go to www.registerme.org. With that, I want to wish everybody a healthy and safe Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. And until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds
1: on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com.